0: Hi there, welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Which Decade is Tops or Pops? I'm joined as always by DJ Trev. Hello there. And by Nick Parkhouse. Hello. And we have a selection of tunes for you, as always, selected by a Magic randomizer, which this time has given us a year suffix of seven and a chart position of six. This means we'll be looking at records at number six in the charts, on April the 19th, from 1967 all the way through to 2017. We got playlists for you. They're on the show notes for the episode. If they're hard to access, then I'll give them to you now. So for the YouTube playlist, go to tinyurl.com forward slash whichdecade22y. The Spotify playlist, it's whichdecade22s. For the extra tracks and bonus bits, it's whichdecade 22 e for extras, I should also just give a quick plug at the top of the show for our newly launched Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash which Decade Tops. For the price of one latte per month, you can join the which Decade Supporters Club. You'll get updates by email every time we publish a new episode. You'll get password protected access to the comment sections for all of our episodes where you can deposit your votes and leave your comments on the tunes within the safe confines of a welcoming and nurturing and hopefully ever-growing community. And by subscribing to our Patreon, you'll also be helping us to cover the costs of putting this podcast together, for which we shall forever be in your debt. Let's get cracking with...
1: The Sixties!
0: This is Ha Ha Said the Clown by Manfred Mann, Yes, them again. They featured in season one as well. Ha Said the Clown was their ninth of 13 top 10 hits between 1964 and 1969. In the UK, it peaked at number four, but it reached number one in five other countries and number two in four more countries. Manfred Mann had three more top 10s in the 1970s with a completely different group, Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Like Fox on the Run, which is the tune we discussed in season one, Ha Said the Clown was also written by Tony Hazard.
1: Well, the star of this episode, as I think we're about to find out as we go along, is the magic Randomizer, And it has tossed us up yet another discussion about Manfred Mann. I mean, I don't know what more there is to say after the first discussion. This is with the new singer, not the old singer. I could tell me Klaus Vorman in a chip shop in Salford story again, but I'm probably not going to do that. When we talked about Fox on the Run, you talked about how they were being forced to make these jaunty pop singles, whereas they actually wanted to make more sensible, like their own written songs. So having heard this, obviously, when we were looking at the previous song we talked about, I went and listened to the B side of this, and it is much more interesting and experimental and stuff than the A-side is. It's called Feeling So Good. I wouldn't say I loved it, but at least it is trying to do something that perhaps they wanted that isn't Ha Ha Said the Clown, which for a song about a funny clown sounds like nobody is having any fun whilst making it is a sort of the ultimate irony. I'll be honest, I don't have an awful lot to say about this because I feel like I'm Manfred manned out. After the last discussion, so what I can do instead is just give you the list of. This is an excellent playlist, by the way. <laughs> top ten songs about clowns. Go on. It's not that many, but it is a great list. So you've got "Ha Ha" said the clown. "Death of a Clown" by Dave Davis. "Tears of a Clown" Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the Beat. Also, "Kathy's Clown" by the Everly Brothers. "I'm a Clown" by David Cassidy and "Clown" by Emily Sunday, which is also lovely. Ah, that's
0: a decent playlist.
2: Trev, are you Manfred manned out? Well, initially, because we've done Manfred man already, I went into this, not expecting to dislike it, but not expecting to exactly like it. And I thought, you know what? I'll do some research. These are the two guys who do all the research all the time, whereas I just sort of wade in and go at it. They seem to really, you know, find some interesting things out. So when I tried to work out the Manfred man timeline, I almost immediately felt like I was losing my mind because there's just So many different lineups and weird slight changes and then quite severe changes. It's like a blue pill, red pill moment for me. You know, like the concept of infinity is just too much for the human mind to cope with. And in 2001, A Space Oddity, where he opens up the thing and it's full of stars and he just loses his mind instantly. That's what trying to work out the Manfred Man time is like. As soon as I'd sort of opened this Pandora's box, I really just wanted to shut it. But then... The nature of me, I do like bands who have lineup changes. I find the politics and all the things that go on behind the scenes quite interesting. And I really wanted to go more. But by that stage, I was actually listening to the song. So whilst Manfred Mann's backstory, if you like, is too vast for my puny human brain to grasp, I think this music, I think it's a really good romp. It's bombastic. It gallops all over the lush fields of the 60s. The lead singer, who still looks like Heath Ledger at this point, He's doing another great job of looking daft and ridiculous in the video. And then the tune sort of obliges on this one. It accelerates. It has weird supersonic keyboard solos. There's timpani fills. I mean, I do think the drummer is far too convincing in looking in the video like he doesn't want to be there. But there's a flute in there. There's some sort of horn. There's a whistling duet with the horn. What the hell is going on here? It's mental and oh God, I think this is going to mean that I'm going to actually have to look into Manfred Mann because I just don't know where to start with this song. And then all the 58 albums that they've done and the 38 different versions of the band that there are, it's just all seems madness. And whilst their last one didn't leave me cold, I didn't hate it, it was just, you know, I've already kind of forgot it. I think I love this one. And I'd be hard to tell you particularly why, apart from just... The insanity of it. If they didn't want to be doing stuff like this, I at least think they've had fun with this. Whereas I think maybe with something about Fox, what was it called? Fox on the Run. Fox on the Run. There you go. That's how much it stuck in my brain. You know, I think they were just trotting it out. I'll at least think on this, they've had a laugh. And I had a laugh listening to it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not quite an earworm, but it's definitely getting there. I think, I'm not sure, but I think I love this. Yeah, I think this is a lot more like it. Fox on the Run, that was
0: two years later, early 1969. Yeah, that sounded like a band running out of energy and inspiration, whereas this has a lot more pep and vim and verve to it. That said, not all of the band liked this song. Lead singer Mike Dabo was never a fan. Man from Man himself had to be persuaded to record it, even though he wasn't too keen on it. And yeah, like Trev says, if you look at the performance clip that I've put on the extra playlist, Mike Hug, the drummer, could not look more pissed off. He radiates disdain from every pore. So if the band weren't keen, maybe it's the arrangement and the production that made this record work. And both of those were provided by Shel Talmy, who was absolute production royalty at the time. He was the regular go-to guy for The Who and The Kinks and he worked on classics such as My Generation and Waterloo Sunset. So it can't be much fun for him, having worked on those era-defining landmark singles for The Who and The Kinks, to go into the studio with Manfred Mann mithering away. Oh, we don't like this one. Do we have to? I'm great for little sods, honestly. Anyhow, this was Shel Talmy's third consecutive single with Manfred Mann, and the second of these singles, semi-detached suburban Mr. James, also was the first hit single ever to feature a mellotron now mellotron was a kind of proto sampler it was a keyboard instrument where each key activated a short section of tape and on that tape there was an analog sample of a musical instrument and there were a selection of samples that came with the machine Ha ha! says the clown also uses a mellotron and it sounds like they've chosen the flute samples to me and these add a nice breezy touch kind of simultaneously puts me in mind of progressive rock on one hand because there were a lot of mellotrons in prog but also of children's tv theme tunes on the other hand the theme tune from rainbow somehow comes to mind and That's actually quite a psychedelic thing to do, to combine those. A lot of early psych had elements that hark back to childhood, while at the same time sounding all mysterious and futuristic and experimental. So it doesn't come as too much of a surprise to discover that there was another single in the charts at this time, which also used a Mellotron. That was The Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever. Now, we're only a couple of months away from the fabled first summer of love. And you can already see hints of what was to come beginning to show up in the charts. Pink Floyd, they were in there with Arnold Lane. The move had, I can hear the grass grow. That's a psychedelic title if ever I heard one. Jimi Hendrix was in there with Purple Haze. The times, they were a-changing. And this whole theme of fairgrounds and circuses and carousels, that was also having a pop moment in April 67. Because we've also got, in the same chart, Sandy Shaw, Puppet on a String. You've got Alan Price with Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear. You've got the Hollies with Honor Carousel. And we're only less than two months away from the release of the Beatles' Sgt Pepper, which had another circus song being for the benefit of Mr Kite. All of this makes Manfred Mann feel very on trend, whether they want it to be or not.
1: It does get half a point in its favour, because I do love a song with punctuation <laughs> in the title. And it's got exclamation marks in it. It's like, you know, brackets add something to the title of a song, like in Love Changes Everything by Climby Fisher, for example. So soon. I know, but exclamation marks and, and speech marks and stuff in a title is interesting. Well done.
0: Both Trev and I share a lifetime fondness for the work of the progressive rock band, yes. So like Trev, I'm I'm a sucker for a band with a complicated timeline of lineup changes.
2: I think what you were saying about prog, you couldn't say that this is a prog song, but there was something about it. This sounded a bit when prog bands do a pop song. It had that element to it, which I really, really liked. And when you were saying the other tunes that were around at the time, this really feels contemporary because I I wasn't surprised when you read all those other tunes. I was going, yeah, yeah, I could see this coming out at that time and sounding like that. And I really like that sort of postcard snapshot of the era. The only other thing that I would say, you thought the Climby Fisher nailing in was tenuous. <laughs> if you like things to do with clowns, you should check out the sub-genre of drum and bass called Clown Step. No! You're making them up now. No, this is absolutely true. There's a sub-genre drum and bass jungle called Clown Step that has the all the way through it and there's some really really good tunes. I think Time Warp by Sub Focus was probably one of the biggest ones. I hope I've got that right. Uh that I can come up with at the top of my head, but this is definitely a subgenre. If you like Clown Links, check that one out. I was <laughs> so sure
0: you were going to uh, make a mention of Insane Clown Posse. How <laughs> wrong I was. Yeah, this genre, psychedelic inspired pop was retrospectively termed psych pop by record collectors in years to come and there was a big psych pop boom but most of it came after the release of sergeant pepper because that was a game changer and when i first heard Ha Ha said the clown my first thought was well somebody's been listening to mr kite then but no this was before sergeant pepper was released it was the really early flowerings of psych pop i think that may have had more to do with shell tell me than manfred man but they were really riding
2: the crest of a brand new wave there because the, the Manfred Man band, they distinctly had sort of frog elements to them, didn't they? Well, later, the Earth bands, yes for sure.
1: This is not psychedelic. Oh, it is, I think, sure, yeah. I know it. it, it, it. Ha, ha, said the clown. We are talking about the same song. It's yeah. not psychedelic. It's a stupid... Look at early
0: Pink Floyd. There's a lot of whimsy in early psychedelia, and there's a lot of that kind of childhood thing. Setting a song in a fairground with a kind of like, you know, mad, laughing, slightly sinister clown, is, it, it, it's a very psych thing to do. It's not all 10-minute, drugged-out, experimental jam sessions.
1: No, I see that. Well, okay, I take your point. I put this in the same bargain bin as Pretty Flamingo, and that's not a psych song. It's just a stupid pop song. Right, well, I don't disagree with you there. <laughs> all right, I'll accept your psych-pop analysis.
2: Of the tunes that, you know, Mike was saying were in the charts at the time, this was definitely closer, I thought, to up it on a string than anything else, you know, which is kind of a silly daft jolly song but that's a nice enough tune as well i think this is daft but it's got enough weird to it you know i like daft anyway i like daft for its own sake but i do think this has got enough weird to have artistic integrity even if maybe they weren't being artistically uh, <laughs> by doing a song that they hated
0: yeah and in terms of this chart of 1967 i think haha said the clown is the exact midpoint between pop it on a string sandy Shaw, and pink floyd Arnold Wayne, psych hop. Shall we move on? Here come. The 70s! Represented by Shawadi Wadi with When. This was the fifth of 10 top 10 hits that Shawadi Wadi had between 1974 and 1978. The biggest hit was Under the Moon of Love, which got to number one in 1976. When was the follow up? and it was the second of seven consecutive top five hits for the band. It peaked at number three. Altogether, Shawadiwadi had 23 top 40 hits, which stretched all the way through to 1982. The song was originally recorded by the Kaling Twins, who took it to number one in 1958. They were one-hit wonders who promptly disappeared from view. It was co-written by Paul Evans. Uh, He had two UK hit singles many years apart. He had a hit in 1959 with seven little girls sitting in the backseat, and then he had another hit in 1978 with, hello, this is Joni brackets, the telephone answering machine song. When is Shawaddy Waddy's second most streamed song on Spotify,
2: behind Under the Moon of Love?
1: That is only because we three have been streaming it this week, I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's a scene in The Simpsons where NASA announced that they are going to put either Homer Simpson or Barney Gumble, the drunk, on the next space shuttle. And the first question from the assembled press pack is is this a joke and they go no no it's not a joke and then they ask for the next question and the next question is no seriously is this a joke and at this point it feels like an awful lot of the tracks that we've had representing the 1970s at least at some level merit that question is this music a joke it's quite fun but what i wonder is are there people who sit at home and listen to shawaddy waddy the tunes i know them for sound like good, fun party music. I almost bought tickets to see them live and I bet it's just a good, fun party, but I wouldn't be sat at the back of the room stroking my chin and going, I see what they've done there because I don't really know what they've done there. Like I wouldn't buy an album of this weird 50s, vaguely teddy boy comedy silliness. You know, do you close the curtain? are Shawaddy Waddy fans sat with like blackout blinds and they've got like a, a nice glass of something and they're in a reclining chair. They've got the Bang & headphones on and they're just zoning out to this. I have to say, I think Shawaddy Waddy look amazing. I love the style and the presentation visually. But the other bands that are like this, because we've had a few pop up, are they the 70s equivalent of like, Scooter. I mean, it's the only parallel I can think of. Like, I often say that things can be just purely fun and fine for that. And I've got absolutely no problem with this whatsoever. But it just does seem a bit weird and just fun. And I'm curious, if there are Shawaddy Waddy fans who sit and listen to the music of Shawaddy Waddy and really go in and read the sleeve notes and stuff like that, I want to hear from them because I think that's awesome. I, I don't really get this. And I do think... Of all the artistic endeavours of the 1970s, such as prog that we've already talked about, and things like folk jazz fusion, I do find it weird that the one that I find so confusing is one that is actually pretty straightforward. It baffles me. There's nothing wrong with it. I just find myself asked, not why, more how. Um, can I just ask? In what
0: way do you see Shawaddy Waddy as the Scooter of the (laughs) 70s? Because I'm
2: not getting that. No, right, no. Musically, not like, like Scooter at all, but Scooter exist outside of dance music yeah and so Shawaddy waddy are I guess rock but they're outside of rock aren't they you know what I mean if you were listening to other rock bands at the time you wouldn't go oh you know who do I like I, I like Queen I like Hendrix I like Shawaddy waddy. you know what I mean they, they don't fit in there and Scooter exist outside of that Scooter make dance music or it's not dance music for people who are really into dance music and they are scorned they're one of the few artists that if you say you like Scooter among the most broad-minded dance crowd people go <clears throat> lol and I mean I actually do like Scooter but I know that people sneer at Scooter and they must have been sneered at Shawaddy and bands like this surely were they I don't know well I think Shawaddy were actually the little mix of their time because they won a the
0: TV talent show the V big ITV TV talent show that also brought us Victoria Wood and Lenny Henry and Marty Kane. Shawadi
2: Waddy won it in 1974, got the deal. That's what launched them. Ah, there you go. This is why I should do research like you guys do, rather than just heading in, because instantly they make
1: a lot more sense to me. Still not complete sense, but more sense. They make to me less sense than the sense they make to Trev. I got not even fathom a reason for it. I've listened to a lot of Shawadi Waddy, over the last few days. And what it has taught me is that I don't ever want to hear a shorty body song ever again. Why were they doing this? Their first couple of singles, right? I get it. Early seventies. They are sort of at the arse end of glam rock, aren't they? They are sort of Slade, sweet light. And then somebody in a record label or somebody as I was listening to absolute fifties radio or, AM or whatever it was in 1974, and I heard one of these went, and went, oh, do you know what this needs? This needs some sort of stupid boogaloo version of this late 50s one-hit wonder. And then for the rest of their career, they've just knocked out this stream of ludicrous 50s pastiche. I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? Under the Moon of Love is... I mean, I don't, I can't describe it. It's, it's the bargainist bin of novelty. The original of this was, what, late 50s? 58, 59? I think the original version of this song sounds more modern and contemporary than the 70s version does. The 70s version somehow succeeds in sounding older than the 50s version. Is that deliberate? It's like that Mike Flowers thing. Put a production on this that makes it sound like Wonderwall was a cover of this. That's what they've done with this. They've made it sound like the original was a cover of this terrible rockabilly 70s thing. It's so weird. I'm also slightly ranting about it because I thought, right, I'll cue their singles in chronological order and just listen to them. And it ended with, who put the bump in the bump-de-bomp? Who put the ram in the ram a lama ding dong And for two days straight, that's all my brain has said to me. Whenever in a quiet moment, it's just gone, who put the bump in the bump-de-bomp? And I can't forgive them for that, frankly. But they also had a hit called A Little Bit of Soap, right? What? What? The one positive thing I could say about them is that one of them was called Romeo Challenger. That sounds like a NASA mission to me or like a superhero or something. And the other question is, you know, last time someone said that modern romance, the road to Agadu began there. I think, the road to Shakin' Stevens begins here whether that is a good or a bad thing I don't know Shakin' Stevens incidentally the top selling male British solo artist of the 1980s fact not George Michael or anybody like that was Shakin' Stevens so I think the road to Shaky starts here and not in a particularly good way I would say
2: that's right I have to say before we go any further I didn't find it a problem listening to Shawaddy Waddy I enjoyed listening to Nick take them
1: down much more, though. That was so good. (laughs) It's so bad. Well, I don't know. It's not bad. Clearly, musically, it's not terrible. But I just find it offensively ridiculous. It's like, what on earth were you doing for all of those years? Had you not got something better to do with your lives than knock out this Butlins-esque 50s covers?
0: Oh, I know where they were coming from. You see, you youngsters won't remember this, but before Shawadi Wadi, there was an American band called Sha Na Na, and they were a large lineup rock and roll revival act. They'd actually played at Woodstock, believe it or not. They were the one rock and roll revivalists at Woodstock, and they were successful, but a bit more in the States than here. And Shawadi Wadi were basically trying to be a British version of Sha Na, Na That was the original idea. Then they won the TV talent show and Mickey Most was one of the judges. Mickey Most is a record producer. He was the Simon Cowell figure and he went on to produce them in the studio. Nick, I feel your pain with the earworms. I had forgotten until this came up in the draw what an unshakable earworm this song is. I can actually remember still one day in the easter holidays of 1977 when this song drove me and my sister mad i think we were doing a jigsaw at my mother's house they were the sort of teenage tearaways we were and every few minutes one of us would just start singing when when you smile when you smile at me," and the other one would go oh god you set me off again and the first one would go oh i'm really sorry i couldn't help it and it just went on and on and on for hours on end it's a big jigsaw and now 46 years later, this bloody song is back inside my head. Nick had two days of Who Put the Bomb. I have honestly spent the whole of last week earworming this bloody song from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed and there is nothing I can do to shake it. Although this time round, I don't know where this has come from. I found myself mashing it up with Marilyn Monroe. So it goes, I need you... I want you near me. I love you. Makes a change, but anyhow, still bloody torture. It does not leave me well disposed towards the record, but I shall attempt to be fair. Right. First off, I need to try not to be too sniffy about nostalgia acts. Nostalgia is an actual emotion that actual human beings feel. And so, pandering to that emotion should not be regarded as too heinous an artistic crime. Yes, nostalgia is based on a filtered fantasy of the past that edits out all the bits of the past which weren't so great, and this has come up before. But there's nothing wrong with indulging those fantasies provided you don't start thinking the past was actually like that. For example, Trev enjoys wishing he'd been around in the 60s before he was born, But I think he also knows that the actual 60s were substantially different from a nostalgia version of the 60s. Right. Judged as an unashamed nostalgia act, I think Shawadiwadi fulfilled the brief pretty well. They did start out releasing original material. Then when the chart positions gradually started to slide, they pivoted to cover versions and then did very well from them, much as UB40 did in the 80s. Side note, there's a brilliant music podcast called Chart Music, which dissects random episodes of Top of the Pops for hours on end. A lot of swearing, unlike us. Now, UB40 have come up a lot on Chart Music, and the people in the team on Chart Music routinely refer to UB40 as Jar Waddy Waddy. <laughs> I think that's a marvellous title. When was the follow-up to their biggest hit, Under the Moon of Love? And it repeats one of that single's best tricks by bringing in those kettle drums. It's much in the same way that Manfred Mann returned to the Mellotron for Ha Ha Said the Clown. The band's song choices were almost always smart. And to their credit, they never settled for bashing out straight up carbon copies of the originals. I think the original Kalin Twins version of Wentz sounds weedy by comparison. That was driven by castanets. This is driven by kettle drums. And I think the whole production adds richness and oomph and bounce and a distinctive Shawadi Wadi sound, which runs through most of their hits. And unlike Manfred Mann, Shawadi Wadi do sound like they're actually having fun making the record. So it passes the test that for me tight fit and modern romance failed it isn't fake fun it's actual fun it's not one of my favorite shawadi wadi hits i prefer under the moon of love three steps to heaven Heartbeat, and i was fairly scornful about it at the time despite harboring impure thoughts about most of the members of shawadi they're not what you might call classically handsome but they look dirty. I mean, they only needed a little bit of soap and I wanted some of their dirt to rub off on me. I agree with this. I can't see much point in listening to Shwadiwadi in 2023 because you just end up being nostalgic about a nostalgia act. And I can't see a whole lot of value in secondhand, second-generation nostalgia. But I think this does its job. I can't hate it for that.
1: Well, we know put the ram in your ram ding dong <laughs> Oh, I wish The bump in your bump-de-bump
0: oh, There were photos of the Luma Sisters team music magazines on, I might edit this bit out
1: Nobody wants to know this Nobody wants oh. to know this <laughs> Let's go for a little walk mm. it, It'll go on the bloopers
0: tape
2: Ah, <laughs> oh, good grief
0: Oh, wow. God
1: Right. That took a turn. Jesus.
0: Uh, welcome back, <laughs> listeners. We've just edited a bit out. Um, <laughs> lingering rather too long on the dubious charms of Shawadi Let's move swiftly on to. The 80s. This is Living in a Box by Living in a Box. It was the first of six top 40 hits that the band had between 1987 and 1989. That included three top 10 hits. This one peaked at number five. They were a three-piece band from Sheffield, fronted by Richard Derbyshire. They split up in 1990, then they reformed in 2016 with Kenny Thomas on lead vocals. He'd had some hits himself in the early 90s. And also in 2016, Marcus Veer from the band had the honor of co-writing four songs on the Lexicon of Love 2, which was the sequel to ABC's classic Lexicon of Love album. This was produced by Richard James Burgess. Now he'd sung lead vocals on landscapes here at Einstein and Gogo in 1981. And he also produced Spandau Ballet's first two albums and all their early singles, as well as Trapped for Colonel Abrahams in 1985. And a cover version of Living in a Box by Bobby Womack reached number 70 in November of this same year, 1987.
1: So Living in a Box was their first song they wrote and recorded together. And they took their name from the song rather than the other way around. They ended up choosing the band name because of the song name. I loved Living in a Box at the time. I bought this when it came out. I think I bought the album when it came out. They were pretty successful. They had Living in a Box, a couple of other minorish hits, Scales of Justice, so the story goes. And then they came back in 1989 with a sound that was more commercial and more polished, but less interesting. I mean, Living in a Box, the most 80s sounding record you could possibly imagine, but also quite funky in its own way. And then they came back with Blow the House Down, which was co written by Albert Hammond off of the strokes his dad albert hammond the fact fans and i like blow the house down and i liked some of their later stuff but less interesting just a bit hornier and i mean with use of horns not um not sure i what horny we're not back to they put the bump in the bump again oh don't start me off no um the interesting thing about living in a box is that They were obviously quite successful, and Blow the House Down was the comeback single off their second album, two years after the first, and it was a top ten hit, and they were, you know, record companies throwing some money behind them. And their career was essentially totally ruined by the Hillsborough football disaster in 1989. Their follow-up to Blow the House Down was a song called Gate Crushing, and it was all set for release, and literally about to go, and... They pulled it, obviously, at the absolute 11th hour because of what had happened at Hillsborough. And they essentially lost all the momentum that they built up with Blow the House Down or what have you. I think Gate crashing got to number 39 when they eventually released it in the charts. It was a flop in many ways. They had to push back the album release. They had to push back all the promotion that they'd been doing and all that sort of thing kind of went to waste and stuff. And then they never really recovered and Richard Derbyshire left and had a minor bit of success with his solo album, but just a terrible timing that a song with that title could have been scheduled for release just as something so awful happened. So, yeah, it's not my favourite of theirs. I I think Room in Your Heart, I love, absolutely love Room in Your Heart, which is a kind of ballady one that they did a bit later on. But I think Living in a Box is great, and I think he, Richard Derbyshire, is one of the best late 80s voices of them all. I'd put him with sort of Marty Pello, you know, whether you like Wet Wet or what have you, Marty Pello's voice is astonishing, I think. And I think Richard Derbyshire is right up there as one of the very best vocalists of that couple of years.
0: I haven't checked this, but is Room in Your Heart by Living in a Box featured in your book that Trevor's has just bought a rare unsigned
1: copy of? It absolutely is. Thought it might be. Yep. So obviously I didn't know that
2: about Hillsborough. That's quite sad. It's not quite sad. That's very sad so i am hoping that i can lighten the mood and all i've really got here it's such a strong memory for me all i can give you really is an anecdote because i can't disassociate this tune from this anecdote so hopefully it will lighten the mood otherwise it's just going to baffle you for 60 seconds Uh, so either in 8788 or possibly 1989 my parents took us for a family holiday to butlins in skegness which is i think The first time I realized we were middle class. And I don't think I mentally articulated that at the time. But what happened was we went from our pleasant three bedroom semi to spend a week in one of the 1980s wooden paneled chalets that they had at Butlin at the time, where the kitchen and the living room and one of the two bedrooms was, in fact, one room. And as a family, this wasn't just me as a moody kid at the time. The entire family had a sort of weird first day meltdown, which genuinely, not just for me, involved tears and shouting and then eventually ironic laughter. uh, We ended up having what was a really great holiday, uh, and it was probably the last holiday that we had as a family before I started ruining holidays in general by being a dickhead teenager, which is actually something that I still from time to time do. But the exact moment that the holiday went from, feeling like a traumatic ordeal because we were just that middle class it was a trauma having to live in basically one room for a week where we could all smell each other's feet and farts and stuff like that the exact moment it changed from being a problem to being all right was when we'd walked out and we'd gone and had a look around and then we went back to the chalet for the first time and as we walked into the chalet I sang the chorus to a contemporary at the time, which was, we are living in a box. And as a family, we went, yeah, we're living in a box. And we all sang this tune. I think that's about as close to comic genius I would achieve for well, possibly to date. And I still go to Butlins and it's fair to say the accommodation has improved greatly. And it just kind of sums up that holiday for me. I can't get away from that. This tune, it got announced. I was like, oh, my God, Butlins. And this was the sound of our summer. So maybe it was the summer after it. I can't quite remember what year it was. But it would be sort of about the last time before I would start to get into my own music. I was at the age where my musical personality was starting to develop and I got into things like Acid House and Hip House and things like that. And I mean, sonically, you can hear a little bit of that in this. There are definitely the 80s drum machine sounds are in there. As I say, I can't separate it from the anecdote, but I just love this. It's pure 80s culture it's snappy it's sharp i think it's great pop music with a chorus that the whole family can enjoy which i think frankly is something you don't get with songs like wap or with like artists like the real shim shady and the bloodhound gang to be absolutely on point and contemporary there for you i think this is as nick said about the most 80s sounding thing and i think it's great for that it sounds like big shoulder pads and god bless it for that i
0: love it well As with psych pop in the 1960s, I'm going to hit you with a retrospective genre that will cover Living in a Box in the 1980s. So in the second half of the 2000s, I was writing reviews for a music website called Stylus, which was widely read in its day, although it never quite reached the heights of Pitchfork, which was its closest rival at the time and is still going strong today. Stylus folded at the very end of the decade, as I recall. And while I was with them, one of my fellow writers wrote a piece about a certain strain of late 80s British chart music, and he coined the term sophisti-pop to describe it. This term has stuck, and the genre has now become an actual term that people use. It even has its own Wikipedia page. Living in a box with the absolute essence of sophisti-pop, as were Johnny Hates Jazz, Curiosity Kill the Cat, Swing Out Sister, Cue and Cry, The Blow Monkeys, and basically most of Nick's favourite music from the late 80s. And yes, I think we have to add Climby Fisher to that list. I bought this when it came out, partly because I was intrigued by the concept I thought it was interesting that the single and the band had the same name. And to start with, there weren't any pictures of the band in circulation. So I had them down as conceptual art pop masterminds, kind of in the same tradition as early Heaven 17 and the acts on the ZTT label. I spotted Richard James Burgess's name in the credits and his reputation as a groundbreaking synth pop producer in the early 80s added to the record's Mystique. Other plus points... There was social commentary in the lyrics, and it was clearly influenced by 1980s Bobby Womack. I loved 1980s Bobby Womack, so I decided that living in a box must have good taste as well as social conscience. It also tickled me greatly that Bobby Womack ended up releasing his own cover version as a single later in the year. It felt like he was saying, "Mm, yeah, I see what you guys did there. And I took it both as a tribute and almost as a kind of slightly amusing riposte. Although, incidentally, Bobby Womack did feature as a guest artist on the third Living in a Box single, so the story goes. Sadly, the mystique was soon punctured for me, and Living in a Box were revealed as Wizard of Oz-like, really. Living in a Box was revealed as three boring blokes in boring suits who looked about as edgy and conceptual as Johnny Hates Jazz. Sophistipop was very much not my bag in the late 80s so I shunned them forthwith and I returned to house and hip-hop and rare groove and all the cool stuff that the style mags told me I should be liking instead. Thing is though I think Sophistipop has worn rather well and what I dismissed as unimaginative and bland and naff at the time now has quite a lot of period charm. I'll never warm to their biggest hit, the one that Nick likes, Room in Your Heart, not for me. But the other top ten hit, Blow the House Down, I think that's very nicely done. It's well arranged, it's funky, it's still a bit naff, but it's basically enjoyable. That said, I don't think they ever topped their first single, and I am happy to renew my acquaintance with it.
1: So, over the course of pop history, there have been thousands of examples of self-titled albums. So you know, Queen and everybody's had an album named after the band. But there has been limited self-titled singles, I think. So artists and single with the same title. So I've got a list here. These are the ones I can come up with. It won't be an exhaustive list. You will think of others. I would love listeners to come up with suggestions. But the list that I came up with today, and this is not including like album tracks. So I know that Madness had a song called Madness on One Step Beyond and MIA did and Kajagooga did on White Feathers. So this is singles, with the artist and title. So the ones I've got here are Jilted John by Jilted John. Talk, 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 talk. Public Image had Public Image. "Dupe" by Dupe, Mr. Blobby by Mr. Blobby. Oh Well, if anybody remembers Oh Well by Oh Well. S-Express-ish, theme from S-Express, S-Express. Big Countries in a Big Country, potentially. Stray Cat's Strut was slightly veering off with Stray Cat Strut and Killer Queen by Queen, but they are the ones that I have. I'm sure there must be others. But...
2: Immediately, Scatman John with the Scatman, with that past muster, or his follow-up song, Scatman's World, if you allow extra ones.
0: Didn't Madonna release a single called Bitch on Madonna?
1: Well, it depends how far away you want to go, because there's things like Teletubbies Say A-O by the Teletubbies. Or
2: oh, Cheeky Girls. I oh, know, it's Cheeky Song. No, it's not the Cheeky Girls, but I've been itching to say Cheeky Girls all day, so that's fine. Do send
0: us your suggestions, listeners, but I advise you to limit yourself to Nick's original definition of the song title being exactly the same as the artist. Otherwise, we'll have too many to read out. No, let's have the other ones. Prince, my
2: name is Prince. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fine. Oh God, we'll be here all night. Ah, oh, no, you will be. You've got to read these things. Me and Nick,
1: <laughs> we'll be off. And if you can find the holy trinity of Living in a Box, the single by Living in a Box from the album Living in a Box, then that's even better. Single and album and band all having the same name, but yeah.
0: Triple points out there for you listeners. Yep. (laughs) Let's have the next decade. (laughs) This is Don't Speak by No Doubt. It was the second of 10 top 40 hits that No Doubt had between 1996 and 2004. That included three top tens. This was their only number one. It entered the charts at number one, stayed there for three weeks. It was also their only number one in the USA and it topped the charts right all over the world. No Doubt originally formed in 1986 and originally they played Ska Punk, but they didn't start having hits until 1995. They took a break between 2004 and 2008, during which time their lead singer, Gwen Stefani, launched a successful solo career. And they've been officially on hiatus since 2016. Probably means they've split up, but they've not actually said so. Don't Speak was co-written by Gwen Stefani and her brother Eric. And it was produced by Matthew Wilder, who had a big hit in 1984 with Break My Stride and I think features in Nick's book. Its lyrics were inspired by Gwen Stefani's breakup
2: with Tony Canal, who was the band's bass player. Uh, one of the things that I struggle with when it comes to getting older is that there's loads of tunes that, in my mind, I still think of as modern, that are actually well old. I think this is probably one of the oldest, but in my mind, I would go, this is, oh, you know, it's a modern power ballad. And it's not modern, really, is it? You simply can't say something is modern when it's 27 years old, without sounding like a giffer, but there you are, I'm a giffer. I think this is a whopping tune that informed me as a DJ, because it's one of the first tunes I remember forcing, and I forced this into sets, I had to force it in, and I still do that now, and I know the vast majority of other DJs are just knocking out non-stop dance bangers, or playing lots of R&B, or things like that, whereas I will cheerfully stop a set in the middle and whack in something like this. I like to think I do it a little bit smoother than I used to, but it probably was breaks on and I would play this. And I hope I always do that. All that hardcore dance is all well and good, but sometimes you've just got to have a real moment. Put your arms around your mates and have a cry or whatever. Now, I do think it's somewhat ironic that the entire premise of the video is how frustrated as a band, no doubt, were by the continued spotlighting of Gwen Stefani. And the suggestion and sort of subcontext is that the industry were trying to turn her into a solo star. And we'll look into that irony when we talk about the next decade, perhaps. But whatever I think about No Doubt's career, the way that they completely changed their sound at this point, I knew more of the spikier ska punk stuff. Whatever you think about this, I just think this stands alone as an absolutely great record. I think it's beautiful. And I think you could just about say maybe a forerunner for emo as well, because this is heart wrenching rock music. They weren't hardcore ska, but they were definitely down the edgier end of things. And what, five years after this, suddenly everybody started having big floppy black fringes and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's uh, quite an important tune as well. And I still rate it and I still play this when I can. When
1: this came up, you know, if you're of a certain age and you see it, you think, of course, of course I know what that is. What a belter. What a great tune that is. And I assumed that it was the song that launched them. I assumed that they had this big hit and that launched their career and all this sort of thing. And it was only looking uh, earlier this week that I know it wasn't. They'd had a couple of hits already by the time this arrived, which surprised me because I thought this was it. I thought they arrived with this and then did all that other stuff that you know. You were talking, I think, last time, Mike, about the CD single and how back in the day what used to happen was that radios would start playing a tune three or four weeks before it was released and they would build up this massive pot of anticipation for it and then on a monday finally you'd be able to go into your local virgin or whatever and buy the cd single and i vividly vividly remember doing that with this and i bought it in kettering i was working in kettering at the time and i vividly remember on the monday in my lunch hour walking into Whatever it was then, our price, HMV or whatever, and buying the CD single of this from a massive wall full of them because it was the big single that was out this week. And of course, it went straight to number one. And I agree with Chet. What a brilliant record. Uh, Is it a power ballad? I think, probably in the loosest sense of the term, that's what it is. No doubt, also one of those bands that I haven't given a second's thought to for years. So I thought, oh, I'll go and listen to a bit of No Doubt, and it's all great. It fits into absolutely no genre whatsoever. It lurches from sort of reggae to ska. Just a girl is not like this. The cover of It's My Life is fantastic. And I thought, well, I quite like this. A band that has not been on my radar probably for 20 years I think Just A Girl is on the kids' radar, isn't it? Has somebody covered that? Or has Olivia Rodrigo been doing that in live shows? And I think the teenagers know Just A Girl. I don't know whether it's been a TikTok thing, but I think the kids know that song from somewhere. So I think they are having a bit of a revival. But no, I think it's just, like I said, I can vividly remember where and when I bought it and hearing it today sounds as magic as it did when I first heard it what a great record
0: yeah you just reminded me of their cover of Talk Talk Kits My Life I mean basically any band with a good taste to do a cover of Talk Talk Kicks My Life and make it a bigger hit than it was first time around because it actually underperformed any band who does that is already all right by me however <laughs> I'm beginning to feel that for me, at least, this whole podcast is basically one long mea culpa in which I'm forced to confront records that I was too cool for at the time and admit now in 2023 that I might just have been wrong about them. Yeah, I'm snooty about Shawadi Wadi in the 70s. They all all right. I was snooty about Sophistipop in the 80s. That's all right. And yeah, I was snooty about No Doubt in the 90s. And I think part of the feel for my snootiness in this instance was that I did vaguely know that No Doubt were a scarpunk punk band, which Don't Speak clearly isn't. So I must have concluded that they were selling out to the man and turning the backs on the music, which they actually loved. I should add, I wasn't into scarpunk punk at all. I wasn't following that scene at all. And i would never actually heard No Doubt actually playing any scarpunk. punk, but still, it was a matter of principle. My judgment had been made. I mean, talk about missing the point, because what this actually is, it's an entirely heartfelt song about a real-life breakup, probably making it the most emotionally true song that Gwen Stefani had ever recorded. I'm assuming there's not a lot of heartache in ska punk. I could, of course, be wrong. It doesn't particularly sound like 1997. It certainly doesn't sound like my 1997, which was all boshing techno, neo-soul and sad boy indie. But as it can't be pinned to a particular fashion in pop, it does end up sounding timeless. And that works to its advantage and it helps to cement it as a classic. It's a very well-crafted breakup song. It doesn't descend into platitudes, that central idea of Gwen burying her head in the sand and asking her soon-to-be ex not talk about the state of their relationship is quite a fresh one and it's a memorable one find it curious that the ex in question is still playing bass on the video and neither he nor gwen give any clue to the viewer that the song is about them specifically she even sometimes sings the lyrics directly to him but then she does that to most of the rest of the band however i've noticed the video does start and end with the bass player with not a lot of clothes on, doing some symbolic things than orange, and I think the orange might be a metaphor for their relationship, so maybe the clues all lay there for the eagle-eyed viewer. So, yeah, yet again, I was wrong. It's a classic breakup song. It must have a great deal of resonance for thousands of people all over the world, and it deserved its worldwide success. It's never too late to acknowledge these things, and I am happy to stand corrected.
1: Just imagine how much fun you could have been having for four to years if you'd liked the fun stuff at the time
0: oh i was having fun just in different ways for different music oh i had a lot <laughs> of fun of the 90s i don't think we're going to get much boshing techno on this podcast but if we ever do i might explain further
2: to go more into uh scar punk scar punk is very emotionally wrought ah. the thing of it is is it doesn't sound like it is mm. so scar punk an awful lot of trumpets you could only really describe it as upbeat, even though those are nonsense words, but you know, it's very and they are singing about suicide and social strife and single parents and addiction. It's one of the things that I don't particularly like scarpunk because I like the tunes and then you start listening to the lyrics and they are talking about suicide and you're like what? And they're going, oh my god, I just can't wait to kill myself. But it is really emotionally raw is punk, and what I was saying about emo before emo the roots of emo are absolutely in ska punk it is all lyrically heart-wrenching oh my life is very very difficult it just doesn't sound like it is because they're doing it over the top of skittery beats and trumpets i didn't know that
0: and it sounds like in that case they are taking their lead from the two-tone bands because there was a lot of that
2: in two-tone
0: especially the specials there was Gloomy band. I, I did notice the drummer is still wearing a vintage Madness t-shirt in the video for this. So. Yeah,
2: so all the ska punk bands, they all love the 2 tone stuff. And I love them for that because I can play them alongside each of I mean, I've done Metal Knights where you stick on a No Doubt tune and then just play some Madness. When you've got a full-on mosh bit and then you drop some Madness, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here come.
0: The 40s. This is The Sweet Escape. By guess who? Gwen Stefani, out of no doubt. Also featuring Akon. Yes, we have a double drop of Gwen this week. This was the seventh and last top 10 that Gwen Stefani had. Her first top 10 entry was actually as a featured artist in 2001. Her first as a lead artist was 2004. It peaked at number two. It was the highest charting hit. But the follow-up only reached number 22. She never had a top 40 hit again. It was also the title track of her second solo album. As for Akon, he had 12 top 10s between 2005 and 2012. That included three number ones. He co-wrote and co-produced this track, as did his regular collaborator, Giorgio Twinfor. Uh, now, he later became David Guetta's regular collaborator and he worked with him on a vast number of hit singles in the early 2010s. This is Gwen Stefani's second most streamed song on Spotify behind Hollaback Girl.
1: How weird that the randomizer has thrown up 10 years apart the same person, Yeah. shall we just say. So I as assumed that... Gwen Stefani was a much more successful solo artist than no doubt were, but that turns out that's nonsense. No doubt, I've sold a lot more records than Gwen Stefani did as a solo artist. We talked a couple of episodes ago about Justin Timberlake, A Crimea River, similar vintage to this, I think, roughly speaking. So in theory, I don't think this is something that I would normally like. I'm going to do a mic here, and I don't think I particularly did like it at the time with the exception of a couple of her later singles i loved cool i think cool is also about a breakup i think as well which is a great pop record and i loved early winter but that's only really because early winter was written by uh your keyboard man from keen so that was probably why i liked that one so i didn't really like whenstaffine at the time but having listened to it back it is bop after bop after bop that whole run of hits that she had all the way through this time from things like rich girl which is i mean it's ridiculous rich girl isn't it i mean it's it shouldn't work really but sort of spectacularly does what you're waiting for is a great pop record wind it up is great so i actually found myself enjoying it a lot more than i anticipated that i would to be honest and that includes this i think this is it's a nice sweet little pop record i can't really genre it in any particular way just is of its time it still sounds quite fresh today i think she's got one of those voices that you could tell it's her a million miles away you know it's her absolutely immediately so a very distinctive vocal stuff and i do think that one of the greatest lyrics of the entire decade is from hollaback girl so just a load of people shouting this waste is bananas b-a-n-a-n-a-s it's just brilliant i could listen to that all day long if you left me no doubt or gwen's solo stuff i think i'd take the no doubt back catalogue on balance but i enjoyed the sweet escape and i enjoyed listening to this solo gwen stefani stuff much more than i expected to so yeah thumbs up
2: i think like nick i think this is an absolutely fantastic pop song now remembering back i don't particularly remember this at the time, as much as I remember loads of other ones. And I think at the time, Gwen was kind of in a a little bit of a downward trajectory because the world went fully mental for a first solo album, which I honestly wasn't that into. But I think by the time this one came around, I think the music press particularly had decided that they'd built up enough and it was time to knock her down. But actually all that stuff comes out in the wash because this tune has aged so well. I was driving in my car a year or so ago and this came on the radio and I'm like, oh, what is that? And it took me 20 seconds from remember and I'm like, oh my God, I played it that night and I'm playing it ever since. I think this has aged almost perfectly. It's far better than some of the culturally dicey pop pop stuff that she did that, at the time, people couldn't get enough of. But as I say, I'm playing this every weekend at the moment, and it does feel like just the perfect pop floor-filling fodder, really. It's, it's sing-along. You could be sat down, and this comes on, and you'll nod your head, and you'll probably still sing the chorus. It isn't changing the world, but I often say this, I don't think pop needs to. And I think the back end of No Doubt's music had shown that Gwen definitely had the pop in her, I know, like, a lot of people with No Doubt, it really, at the time, felt like a pretty hard turn from being in Skaplunk into, like, full-on pop music. I know it left a lot of people cold, but it didn't for me. And I think this is Gwen doing the same as that type of thing. I think No Doubt had some excellent pop records towards the back end. I would... Rather leave, really, if I'm honest, Gwen's attempts at the hip hop stuff elsewhere, that's aged unfavorably, if I'm honest, certainly the Harakuku Girls is a bit cringe. Gwen's guest spots on other legitimate hip hop artist tunes are really good, so I could see why she would do that type of stuff. Speaking of guest spots, Akon, he's in as a featured because he, he wrote this clearly. He doesn't really do much in the song at all. This is a very, very light guest spot. And, you know, I, you know look at Gwen's backing singers who were, I think were the Harikuku Girls. Why didn't they get a credit? Because they're on it much more than Akon. But that's just the pop industry machine and whatever. I could leave the hip hop stuff that she did as a side. I would have liked her to do much more of this type of stuff. I think it's absolutely cracking. And, yeah, I love it. Hmm. You know, some of these records are easier to talk about than others.
0: And having had a lot to say about the first tunes of this episode, I really don't find myself having much to say about this one. As close as I've come to Podcaster's Block, I bought the first Gwen Stefani album and I enjoyed it a lot. And I totally bought into her as an excellent 2000s pop star on this video. She sells the song very well. She's stylish. She's charismatic. She's not as artificially stylized as I thought she would be. There's more warmth and there's less remoteness than my memories of her image had led me to expect. I think Akon does warrant his featured credit because. He was an integral part of the composition and the production. But yeah, his vocal contributions are minimal. He basically just gets out of the way, lets Gwen do her thing. I think that was a sensible judgment call to make. I don't think too much of a blend between their two stars would necessarily have served the song well. Yet the track has a nice breezy swing to it. shades of Madonna's True Blue in there, I think. But... By the end of it, I kind of think that the woo-hoo's and the yee-hoo's have been rather done to death. And that's my issue with the track as a whole. For me, it stays too long in that exact same groove. And that ultimately does become a bit wearing. Taking a broader overview, for me, I definitely prefer solo pop star Gwen Stefani over No Doubt Gwen Stefani. But on the basis of these two particular tracks, No Doubt are no doubt, the
1: clear winners for me today. Would you like the top 40 hits with the word escaping? Would you like the escapes? (laughs) There's no stopping you. No, there absolutely isn't. Escape by Enrique Iglesias, uh, number three in 2002. Escape Plan by Travis Scott. Escape Artists Never Die by Funeral for a Friend. Escape the Pina Colada song, obviously, by uh, Rupert Holmes. The Great Escape by We Are Scientists and The Great Escape 2000 by the England Supporters Band. God, can you imagine? That's just those wassocks at the football playing the theme from The Great Escape on horns. <laughs> Made the charts, ladies and gentlemen, back in the day. Uh, the biggest hit in UK chart history with Escape in the title is The Sweet Escape by Gwen Stefani. Oh,
2: there you go. Well, I'm glad uh, I referenced emo earlier because you had Funeral For Friend who were, or still are actually, an absolutely outstanding emo band. And we are scientists in that list there as well who were emo indie. I mean, you couldn't say they were an emo band, but there was definitely emo indie. That sort of uh, art rock indie, I guess you could call it. Indie for students who were really students in there as well. So, yeah, good stuff. Sounds like I know what I'm on about. Only emo band I've ever seen live were Funeral for a
0: friend. They were headlining an NME package tour, and the other three acts below them were not even remotely emo. A feeling Franz Ferdinand and Interpol may have been on that tour. I'm not sure
2: those certain. those NME tours were magnificent because were. it was kind of one band from each scene. And so what an absolutely ahead-of-the-time thing to do because it exposed you to bands that you wouldn't have seen. I saw Andrew WK dance metal guy being supported by <coughs> lost profits who were an excellent band you know problems aside uh and the coral you know the doom doo, 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 scousers and black rebel motorcycle club you know it's like the four corners of contemporary rock at that time and it, they were brilliant to us love them crystal castles with magnetic man on the same bill that was a night
0: to remember yes. but with the funeral for a friend. When they came on stage to do the headline set, honestly, about half of Rock City and Nottingham left. And I thought, well, I'm not going to leave. I mean, probably not my sort of thing. I'll hang around, I'll give them a chance to see what they're like. I really enjoyed their set. It didn't convert me to emo as a music, but fantastic It's a
2: shame that happened. And I mean, obviously, this podcast is now becoming the Funeral for Friend podcast. (laughs) Uh, But that used to happen at emo gigs as well. Headliners come on tell everybody you're leaving because you've seen the two support bands who were really cool and edgy and haven't got signed yet but oh, the band who've sold records are coming on i'm going now because i'm not into that i i've seen that happen at funeral for friend gigs oh well i'm not here to see them i'm here to see the unsigned band tragic like watch the band
0: massive digression going on here but i remember being in select disc in Nottingham, which was an uber cool record store i was always intimidated going in there and it was early days for you too and they were headlining rock city but the sport band were wall of voodoo who had a minor hit with mexican radio and i overheard all the counter staff saying yeah well
2: we're all going to leave after wall of voodoo we're not staying around have you too are we <laughs> so yeah it's always been there i hope that type of thing has died out now you know the death of cool is upon us but i hope that's one of the things that's died out watch the band Give them four songs. If you don't like them, then leave. But don't leave before the band comes on, dickheads. The Gwen Stefani comeback is firmly on. She's got all the nostalgia. I could probably play four or five Gwen Stefani tunes on a Saturday night. And riding the coattails of that, no doubt, are back as well. Because the kids... Do their research. Oh, why do I like that? Oh, right. Well, in that case, I'll like that. And she's got a big tour this year. Arena tour as well, yeah. I
1: believe. The flip side of that enemy thing was that I went to one of those that was headlined by Jolene and the Jing Zhang Zhong. Oh, yeah. It was the absolute apex of hype and publicity over talent. They were genuinely one of the worst bands that existed, but everybody was desperate to see them because they'd been in the NME and whatever. And then they released a record and everyone went, this is garbage they're supposed to be the most amazingly massive new thing and oh god terrible
0: when people ask me what is the worst gig i've ever seen in my life jolene and the jing jang jong is sometimes my answer i went to see them as a headliner at the rescue rooms in nottingham it was laughably inept and the record company actually sent me a promo album sampler cd of the album that never came out because everyone realized how appalling they were and then most of the rest of the band joined a actually quite well regarded indie band called toy like a psych indie band and did quite well so some of them redeemed themselves but this is a massive digression <laughs> and i've got so much to say about the next one oh god let's bring on This is something like this by The Chainsmokers and Coldplay. It was the seventh of nine top 40 hits for The Chainsmokers between 2014 and 2019. Peaked at number two, spent 45 weeks on the top 100. Chainsmokers have had four top tens altogether, including one number one, Closer, which topped the charts in 2016. The featured artist on Closer was someone that you might have heard us mention once or twice before. Yes! It's our old friend, Halsey. Honestly, never mind Climby Fisher. I'm beginning to think that Halsey is somehow stalking this podcast. Who would have thought that such a, to my mind, slender talent, whom almost nobody of my generation has even heard of, would turn out to be the nexus around which all of 2010 pop revolves? Shall we just start calling the 2010s the Halseys instead? Should we get Rory Hoy to re-record the jingle for this decade? The Horses. Anyhow, back to the chain smokers. <laughs> their names are Drew Taggart and Alex Paul. They're an American DJ and production duo. Something like this was their last significant hit. After this, they never got higher than number thirty-four. It's their second most streamed song on Spotify, behind Closer. Both tracks have had over two billion streams. It's also Coldplay's most streamed song on Spotify, and by some considerable distance. Their second most streamed song is Yellow, that has a mere 1.5 billion streams. Coldplay have had 19 top 10s from 2000 to 2021, and two number ones with Viva La Vida and Paradise. This was their penultimate top 10 single to date. Four and a half years later, they peaked at number two with My Universe, which was a collaboration with BTS. The song was co-written by both members of the Chainsmokers and three members of Coldplay. The two acts performed it together at the Brit Awards on the
2: day of the track's release. A lot of people like to hate on Coldplay and yeah, you know, that's fine if you like, but I often say this, in fact, I said this in the last episode, I think what people actually hate about Coldplay is that the music and the bands that Coldplay inspired. There's loads of relatively weak, ultra-light indie carbon copy acts who came out after Coldplay, or Coldplay, big record labels, let's sign a load of bands who sound like them. But for me, I think Coldplay, the band have got a load to offer. I had written them off by the second album, if I'm honest, but my mum loves them. So I bought her the Viva La Vida album. And as I was driving home from work one night, I was going to go and give her the album. The next day, I had an hour and a half. And then, oh, what the hell? There was now on Radio 1. I'll give it a spin. That's a really strong album. Coldplay always sounded like they could stray into light dance music, and I think the treatment that they get here from the Train Smokers is perfect. I think it complements the sound really, really well. It's got that it's almost tropical house feel to it. It's super light, but it doesn't have the cliched plink plonk sound of tropical house. It's kind of like a a light version of what Imagine Dragons do. I think where they Pitch on indie soft rock with touches of dance does bring to mind another band that people hate on, which is U2. But I think Chris Martin laughs at himself much more and more honestly. Whilst they're not in my top 20 bands, Coldplay are one of my very, very favourite live acts. I've seen them a bunch of times. Once at Glastonbury, where the headline, which was, I thought, sensational. But I would now actively go and seek out a Coldplay gig They're absolutely fantastic. I I think you should put your hate away if you hate Coldplay. It's smooth, shiny, pop. Yeah, you might want something gritty and edgy and aren't you cool, but I'm not. I think it's really well produced. I have very, very little to say about the Chainsmokers because I've just gone on about Coldplay but I think that's how the Chainsmokers fit into this to be honest the Chainsmokers complement this really well I imagine they featured as the production team behind it as much as anything and I think the production's fantastic I think we've had a really strong week of tunes here I think this is very, very good pop again
1: Well, let's start by echoing a couple of the things that Trev said there fantastic live band I mean, I've seen Coldplay a bunch of times I'm in the fix video because they filmed it at the Bolton stadium Reebok stadium as it was in those days so for the encore of their show they performed it twice or three times I think because they were filming the video uh it was absolutely weighing it down that night in well as it tends to in Bolton in fairness um and so yeah I've seen them a few times I think they're absolutely great I've been a fan of Coldplay since day one and it's funny isn't it with Coldplay I think that right now is as good a time as any to admit that being a Coldplay fan is cool. I don't think it's ever been particularly cool, but I don't think it's any less cool now than it ever has been, which is weird, isn't it? One of the things they have done spectacularly well during their career, I mean, they've been going 25 years, and are still what you would call a Radio 1 band. They headline Radio 1's Big Weekends and that sort of thing, and they play their songs on Radio 1 and stuff. And you think, well, that's quite an achievement, isn't it? Because Radio 1 is the first... They're the first people to ditch you when you're no longer cool. So, for them to have sustained 25 years worth of essentially radio one airplay is pretty impressive. Trev's also right about the fact that this song is not far away from where their music went. I mean, the Viva la Vida Ram is a really good point because up until that point. Their previous album, X and Y, had reached the kind of logical end point of their musical growth. So it went from sort of acoustic indie to a bit bigger to stadium rock, and then there was nowhere else for them to go. So Viva La Vida was a bit of a reset, kind of, and they went back to doing something slightly different. This was 2017. They'd started with synths and moving into a synth pop thing Years earlier, probably about, I think probably Princess of China, the Rihanna collaboration 2011 is when they started dipping their toe into this kind of more synth-based dance sound. Obviously, they worked with Avicii in 2014 on A Sky Full of Stars, which is very, you know, we have talked about EDM, much to Mike's disgust a couple of times. And then A Head Full of Dreams in 2015, where they started working with Beyonce and stuff, things like Every Teardrop is a Waterfall. They're already doing that sort of synth-based stuff. And so this is kind of the next logical step up from that, and it reached its conclusion. You'd probably argue with the Max Martin collaborations on Music of the Spheres 2021. So they've had a 10-year journey of kind of upping the synth ante, if you like. This was one of those kind of Brits moments, wasn't it, where you didn't know who they were collaborating with till they came out on the day. I don't know how often this has happened, but the production, the backing of something just like this samples a Chainsmokers song it is just one of their earlier singles Roses sampled with a different vocal over it so if you go back and listen to Roses which I think was 2015 one of their earlier singles it's just the same sort of they've just adapted the backing from that so they have just sampled their own song which is a little bit weird they started off I mean their first hit Selfie is a just a novelty stupid novelty hit the Chainsmokers but then I think they actually you know they're a one-trick pony if you listen to their back catalogue They've done collaborations with all sorts of people, you know, Five Seconds of Summer and Halsey, as you mentioned, and BB Rexer and people like that. And their production is sort of the same. You know, it's kind of not really evolved very much. This is essentially the same as Paris and as Closer and stuff. It's not a massive diversion from that. And it's Coldplay's biggest selling song. Uh, Again, to have your biggest selling song 20-odd years into your career is a pretty big achievement. We're in share Believe territory, aren't we? (laughs) <laughs> so anyway, I'm a massive Coldplay fan. I've always been a massive Coldplay fan. And i am actually was listed the chainsmokers this week. I think I actually really like some of that as well. Closer is great, Holsey Notwithstanding, Paris is great, Sick Boy is great. So some of the other stuff is great. So no, this is just it's a great collaboration and a great pop record. Oh God. Here we here we go. <laughs> I'm
0: getting flashbacks from the Avicii episode <laughs> at the end of season one here. <clears throat> wow. Well, all my Christmases have come at once. Not one, but two acts from the 2010s or the Hallses who leave me stone cold for the price of one. Where do I begin? Let's start with the chain smokers. But I'm going to start with another Maya culpa. In that last episode of season one, Trev pushed back on my anti-EDM rant when he stated that EDM was a more diverse genre than I'd given it credit for. And you know what? He was right. I basically avoided the chain smokers on principle at the time. And listening to their stuff now, I have become belatedly aware of a whole new subgenre of EDM. Down-tempo EDM. And here we have the masters of that particular style. Now, they didn't start out that way. Their first two singles, which didn't show absolute bog-standard EDM. Then for their breakthrough hit, Hashtag Selfie, They added an actually quite amusing female spoken word monologue on top. But by the time we got to their next big hit, Roses, the BPMs had slowed to a comparative crawl and the pattern had been set for all their future work. Well, the general public no doubt disagree with me, but I prefer the earlier, funnier stuff. This later, slower stuff, it just sounds so pallid and so dure to me that I'd be tempted to call them the EDM Coldplay. Which brings me neatly on to Coldplay. Now, I live with someone who has a deep-seated, visceral loathing of Coldplay and of Chris Martin. So maybe this has influenced me somewhere along the line. His standard pithy one-liner about Coldplay is that, quote, they make music for accountants in Milton Keynes who think they're being edgy and alternative. And when I asked him a couple of days ago to explain precisely why he hated Chris Martin, he took a long pause and replied with just one word. That word was smug. Now, I do know where he's coming from on both points. When Coldplay emerged at the start of the 2000s, very much in the wake of Travis, I think, and very much paving the way for Snow Patrol a couple of years later, It felt like they were erasing the very final traces of so-called indie music as being an alternative, countercultural, and adventurous genre. I mean, they're about as indie as Starbucks, aren't they? And I think it's fair to say that the true heartland of their fan base is middle-class suburban families, rather than the troubled and edgy outsiders that indie music used to attract. I'm gonna pause here and do a quick test can either of you name any of the other members of Coldplay who aren't Chris Martin? Go, uh,
1: Berryman, Guy Berryman, Johnny Buckland, and the other one.
2: Uh, I couldn't name you half the members of some of my favorite bands, to be perfectly nah. <laughs> There <laughs> you <care>. go.
0: <laughs> Even Nick, who's seen Coldplay multiple times, was struggling there. You didn't mention Phil Harvey and Will Champion, Will, Cham- Will
1: Champion is the other one,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, you see. They they are incredibly anonymous for such a huge band. They could walk down the street. They could go into our local Tesco. No one would know who they were. But Chris Martin is certainly a star. And while my partner might call him smug, I do always think he looks a little too pleased with himself, shall we say. I actually saw him once in person at an art fair in Islington. You know how you see famous people in the flesh? They're always shorter than you were expecting. Well, Chris Martin is the opposite. He is really, really tall. And at this art fair, he did actually handle himself quite well, which is more than you could say for the gallery owners who were manning their booze as he floated inscrutably by. Oh, the fawning You could almost see hands being physically wrung. Now... If I were in my 30s, Coldplay might have been one of the first bands I ever heard. And it's always the case that the first music that you hear stays with you as the way that music is properly supposed to be. Everything that came before is old. Everything that came after is new, but I'm not in my 30s. So I've had decades of exposure to guitar bands who I found vastly more interesting than the pallid beige slop that Coldplay serve up. Yes, I have finally used the word beige. One of Travis's favourite insults. There are exceptions. There always are exceptions. Fever La Vida is an out and out solid gold classic. I absolutely adore it. I play it out a lot. Always works. I bought the parent album. I found it comparatively listenable and fix you clearly has a lot of profound meaning for millions of people i am not about to stomp all over that it is interesting harking back to this collaboration thing it's interesting to see who they've collaborated on on the singles that get mentioned in their discography because you get rihanna r&b big sean hip-hop bts k-pop and the Chainsmokers, ETM. This goes back to what I was saying in the season one finale about 2010s pop having to get onto tightly curated genre specific playlists in order to gain exposure. And as Nick has added, in order to keep on Radio 1 playlists as well. Did Coldplay look at BTS and think, hmm, these are really interesting new artists who are doing some really amazing things? It could be a creatively rewarding experiment to collaborate with them. I think not, and I have similar suspicions about the collaboration with the Chainsmokers. I realise I haven't said anything at all about this particular song. Well, a lot of pop music is about context, and I might well have enjoyed this a lot more if I'd had some personal context for it. If I'd been out somewhere with a bunch of friends and someone like Trevor put it on, and all my friends went, oh, God, I love this. Come on, everyone. And we'd all linked arms and we'd all sung that doo 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 bit at the chorus and I'd have heard it again and then I thought, oh, that great night out I had where we all put our arms around each other and that would change it, it would genuinely change it. But I have no context. So I have nothing useful to say about what strikes me as an
1: utterly generic piece of work. Sorry. I can answer your question about BTS. Uh, Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Simon Pegg's daughter, suggested to Chris Martin that they work with BTS. Simon Pegg's daughter being young and into BTS, and Simon Pegg being a friend of Chris Martin, and suggested the collaboration that they then went, okay, let's try that, and did that.
2: I actually think that's one of the better ones, to be honest. I don't see Coldplay going, oh, let's add some credibility. You know, they're essentially the biggest band in the world at that point, and let's do a song with the Chainsmokers, because I assure you, in the world of dance music, people aren't going... Or the chain smokers. It's not like, oh, let's do a song with Armin Van Helden or Todd Terry. On Roger Sanchez. No one's going. What you need is some credibility. And where you're going to get that credibility from is the chain smokers. Oh, what the band who did let me take a selfie. That's not for credibility. Exactly.
0: They chose the chain smokers because the, the chain smokers have just had the most absolutely ginormously humongous international hit with Closer. It's a commercial decision. How strange. You never read about them collaborating with up and coming, unknown, unsigned artists. It's Rihanna. It's Beyonce. It's Avicii.
2: I think that bears some examination because, yeah, they have the power to bring artists up. But equally, if you were an edgy up and coming artist and Coldplay said they want to do a song with you. uh, How do we answer this? Because that could kill you before you've even started, couldn't it? It would be like collaborating with Bono.
1: Chris Martin has written and collaborated with other people. Because he's features on Dua Lipa's first album, for a start. They do a duet on Dua Lipa's first album. She wasn't a star, presumably, at the point where they recorded and wrote that together. And other bands have recorded. He gave away Gravity to Embrace back in the 2000s or whatever, which would have been a massive hit, and Mm. gave it away to somebody else at the time. So I don't think you can necessarily accuse him of that either.
2: And with his smug, I know that... Now that we're in the Chris Martin Defense podcast, uh, with regards to him being smug, that he's done quite a lot of stuff laughing at himself. Check out his episode of Extras, the Ricky Gervais thing, because he really goes in on himself and it performs it brilliantly. I don't know if you don't like Ricky Gervais as well, but I do. I don't think someone who's that successful can very easily avoid seeming smug. He is so massive. What could Bono do to not seem like a dickhead? Because he's just going to seem like a dickhead, isn't he? You know what I mean? This millionaire rock star.
1: At the risk also of offending somebody that I love dearly, I think that saying that they make music for accountants, to me, is the laziest criticism you can lay at the door of Coldplay. (laughs) Ah,
2: The gloves are off! It's going, it's
1: kicking off! It is a very cliched criticism of them, especially when their partner subsequently bought a Coldplay album and isn't an accountant, last time I checked.
0: There is some personal context as to why he chose accountants from Milton Keynes, but we're getting into the realms of (laughs) someone else's... Autobiography, so I'm gonna, gonna park that one there. <laughs> Shall we do some voting?
1: Probably for the best, yes.
0: <laughs> I started this podcast not knowing how I was gonna rank these songs, in that there were no kind of outstanding obvious winners for me to begin with. And as we've gone through, I've been slowly ranking them. So what I've ended up with is I'm giving Most Bad and Hated to Shawaddy Wadi. At the end of the day, it is just a silly nostalgia song. So other stuff has more value. I'm putting The Chainsmokers and Coldplay into the Met Zone for that reason. I'm also putting Gwen Stefani and Akon into the Met Zone. I just don't think the song develops enough. It just stays in one place for too long. So my top three, the one point goes to Living in a Box for the 1980s. That's one well. Number two is Manfred Mann from the 60s, like a bit of psych pop. And my three points, first position and 1997 me would have been amazed to hear this, but it's definitely going to no doubt with Don't Speak. Nick, let's have yours, please.
1: I'm going to agree with you because I don't want to put the bump in the bump-de-bump any more than I have to. And I honestly, it's still there. I can't get rid of it. I agree with you. This is, in terms of quality, probably overall best week so far for me. I like all of these except when by Shawadi Wadi minus one. Mare Zone, haha said the clown. It's not psych pop, it's just pop. So that can have a mare, as can, again, in any other week, it would have got points the sweet escape. But sadly, not this week. Third place for No Doubt, Don't Speak, Whatabop. Second place, Living in a Box, Living in a Cardboard Box for the 1980s and top points for Coldplay and the Chainsmokers, Please. Music for accountants, but I like the numbers. So
2: I came into this podcast not knowing how I was going to rank them. I knew which was going to be my most bad and hated. And it is, I think, really unfair on them. And I think it's unfair on the decade because, my word, the 70s look like they are getting an absolute kick in here. And I don't hate this at all. It's just all the other five on another week, I think could be number one. I struggle to rate the other five. I'm about to do it. But yeah, sadly, Shawaddywaddy is last place. Harsh on them, really. But there's least to like out of all of those. And so the other five, on a different day, these could have been top to bottom. I just don't know. I'm going to say Manfred Mann and Coldplay and Chainsmokers in the Met zone. I think Manfred Mann I'll know better in three weeks when I've listened to it a lot more, whether or not it was just a quirk, and I really do like it as much as I think I do. The Coldplay one, I was actually surprised how much I did like it, but when you're up against these, third place, no doubt, it really could be interchangeable. Second place, Living in a Box, and first place, Gwen Stefani. I think Gwen Stefani, as I say, is perfect pop. I think Living in a Box is perfect 80s. And I think, no doubt, is, as I still think, perfect modern power ballad. Just the 27 years old there, Trev. Edgy. Quite tight set of votes here. Apart from
0: Wadi for the 1970s, uh, clear last place, minus three points. Then we have, in the Met Zone, the 1960s, Manfred has notched up a total of two points. Then we have an equal third position and an equal first position so equal third position three points each gwen stefani and the chain smokers from the two most recent decades equal first with five points we've got living in the box and no doubt 80s and 90s very difficult to predict which way these votes are gonna go a solid week. Season two, episode one, remains my favorite week of the podcast series so far. But this was a solid week. Happy with that. We're going to do something a little bit different in the next episode. But I'm not going to tell you what. Instead, I'm going to tell you how to vote on these tunes. First and foremost, why not vote via the Witch Decade Supporters Club at patreon.com forward slash Witch Decade Tops? It's all password protected no one else can see what you're up to unless they are also members of self same club there's also twitter at which decade tops there's gmail which decade is tops at gmail.com there's facebook just search for the name of the podcast specify your first second and third favorites in descending order of preference and your most bad and hated or at least your least favorite please leave any additional comments you choose to make and we'll read some of them out in the next results bulletin. Your voting deadline this time is 6pm UK time on Wednesday, the 3rd of May. But for now, it's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye from Trev. Noah. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Which decade is Tops for Pops?